I got a couple of announcements. Please, you guys that are listening now, remind me to re-announce these things at the end. As we approach the end of class, if you could just slip a couple of comments into the chat section to remind me to, to say these things again. But we have a Matthew exam you know about, and it needs to be turned in by this coming Tuesday. So you still have a couple of days to get that done. This coming week, uh, the schedule for our classes, we're going to have Tuesday class, just like we have been doing. And then Wednesday, we are also going to have class, just like we've been doing. I'm going to take advantage of that hour now that uh, Francois is done with Philippians. I will give you the notes for the Philippians exam, right? I'll give those to you most likely this coming Wednesday, and then you'll have a week to write that exam. So please know that that is coming soon. Uh, but we are going to remain or, or stick with the same schedule for the next couple of weeks at least until we finish Matthew class. So Tuesday night, Wednesday night. However, this coming Sunday, next week, I know that it's a long weekend. Several of you are going out of town either Wednesday evening or, or uh, um, Thursday. You're going to be heading home or somewhere else. So next Sunday we're not going to have class, okay? I, do, I, I didn't have a chance to look at the schedule. We might have already um, marked this one as a day off. I, I think though, if memory serves, we had planned to have class the whole way through September. Because we now have access to a few extra Wednesdays, I think that we can manage to skip next Sunday and still be okay. So just please know, no class next Sunday evening. We are not going to have an evening service or anything. So many people are going to be out and traveling. We're just going to take that time off. Let me reposition a little bit here, get in the center. Um, I wanted to give you guys just a quick thought um, on the call to preach. You know, that's a question that I've gotten uh, several times down through the years. How do you know that God has called you to preach? So let me give you some very practical advice on this. If you're not sure, try. Give it a shot. And for those of you, if the call to preach, especially uh, any ladies that are listening, you might automatically kind of tune out and say, you know, that, that's not something that God is going to call me to do, to have a pulpit ministry. And biblically, I understand where you're coming from. But this same advice would apply to any spiritual gift. Right? If you're wondering, does God want to use me in this or that ministry? Give it a try. Give it a try. I don't see how the Lord would be upset uh, because you tried and, and gave it a shot. And if the Lord has to say, you know what, thanks for trying. That's not exactly the way I want to use you. At least you've made yourself available. At least you have the experience of it now. And now, if God puts you into some other ministry, right, you know your strengths, you know your weaknesses, and you know, I, I'm not so great at that. This is what God's called me to. So if I come across some people that need that other ministry, not my strong suit, but now at least I know I need to ask for help in that area. So when it comes to the call to preach, give it a try, right? There are so many ways to do this. Um, you can come and let me know privately. Say, Pastor, I, I think God might want me to, to be a preacher. I think that's his calling in my life, but I'm not sure. I'd like to confirm it. And one of the things, this is not the only way to do it, but one of the things you can do is actually get up and preach to a congregation. So we, we, can, we can provide that opportunity to whatever extent you're comfortable with. 
whatever extent I'm comfortable with, right? Uh, it depends on how old you are, how much experience you have. There are different different ways we can give you that opportunity. But if maybe you've been praying about that, wondering if that's something God might want you to do, uh, I, I would strongly suggest give it a try. It's the same thing, I think, when it comes to missions, right? If you're not sure that God wants you to be a full-time missionary, right? That's your calling, your lifelong calling. Go to a mission field. It, it doesn't have to be a specific one, right? I, you might remember I told the story about Peter Putney. He came to visit me in Malawi, but God, he knew that Africa really wasn't the, the focus of, of God's calling. He figured that God wanted him elsewhere, especially in a Spanish-speaking nation because he had already started to pick that language up by then. Um, but he just wanted to confirm the call to missions. So he took a trip and, and spent some time with a, a veteran missionary. I'd been on the field for a few years at that point. So whatever, whatever you think that God might be directing you to do, I think it's a great idea to give it a shot. And then once you've taken some steps in that general direction, God can give you further uh, guidance, right? The Bible says a man's heart deviseth his path, but the Lord directeth his steps. So until you take some steps, there's really nothing to direct. So I hope that helps. You can open up your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 25. I'm gonna switch us over to the different screen. I believe, yes, I'm unmuted here as well. I'm on a roll. All right, Matthew 25, and we are gonna begin in verse number 31. Let me put the outline back up just for a moment. And before we dive into that, let's pray. Father, help us tonight, please. Thank you for a good day thus far. Thank you for the privilege of praying, talking to you, and knowing, Lord, that you so graciously bow down the ear to hear what we have to say. Tremendous, God. We need your help and guidance, please. So much, so much we need to learn. Uh, please teach us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Matthew 25. We've already covered the first two portions of this chapter. Portion one, the ten virgins. Portion two, uh, three servants, the, the one with the five talents, two, and then one. And then the third portion of this chapter, verses 31 to 46, two groups. There's the sheep and the goats. For those of you that have done discipleship, and I hope by this time um, all of you have done that. If, if you're in the Bible school, you, you should have already done discipleship or at least be doing it. But you will know this as the judgment of the nations. We cover it in lesson five in our discipleship in that. All right, so Matthew 25 and verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. This tells us immediately what, sorry, what the context is. We are dealing with the second coming of Christ. There's no doubt about that. Uh, in verse number 32, it says, And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. Verse 33, And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Now, before we get into what he says to each individual group, let me just give you a brief recap on the timeline. And I'm sorry, I know that cuts, it, it might cut a little funny on the screen or look a little strange because my picture, the video comes down on it a little bit, but you're not missing anything. My, my uh, camera angle is not covering up any, anything but a little bit of blackboard. All right, so this 
timeline should be very familiar to all of you. The first arrow obviously is the rapture, the second one that comes down, the second coming of Christ. But notice where that's at. That's in Revelation 19, verse 15. He comes down, he treads the wine press, he has on his thigh, on his vesture, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And then, Revelation 20, he reigns for a thousand years. And after the thousand years are finished, Revelation 20, verse 12, you read about the white throne judgment. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out is because there's the temptation for people to say that Matthew 25, verse number 31, 32, and onwards, that you're reading about the judgment, right? Some people approach the Bible as if there is only one judgment, the final or ultimate judgment, and that's where God decides heaven or hell for everybody. Now, again, if you've done discipleship, you know that there are multiple judgments in the Bible, and God does not reserve judgment until the end of time, and then, then he judges everybody. Uh, we have the judgment seat of Christ for believers that happens directly after the rapture, takes place up in heaven. But then right when Jesus comes back, that's when this judgment of the nations happens. You say, how do you know that? Well, because of the context of Matthew 25, right? We're reading that he, he comes with his angels. He sits upon the throne of his glory. That'll be the throne of his father, David, in Jerusalem. And then all nations are gathered before him. Now, we actually touched on this a little bit last, last week, I believe it was, where I, in Matthew 24, we read a verse where the angels gather together the elect and bring them back to their, their land, into the kingdom. And I showed you a verse in Isaiah 66, how that those angels will, ha will have human help as well. And other Gentile nations will be bringing the Jews from afar back to their homeland. I believe that plays into how all nations are gathered before the Lord. And then he determines, he puts some on the right, some on the left hand, some come into the kingdom, some go out. So these will be people that survive the tribulation time. And they are alive to witness the second coming of Christ. It's not like a lot of people, and I don't know an exact number, but I don't think a lot of people will survive all the events of the second coming. But those that do will face this judgment. So if you just look at the timing in Revelation 19, that's the second coming of Christ. That matches Matthew 25, 31. Then Revelation 20, there's a thousand years. After the thousand years, there's the white throne judgment. So if you just look at how the Bible maps out the chronology of prophetical events, I think we can see that what we're reading about here in Matthew 25 is not the same as the white throne judgment. All right, uh, back in our context now, we have, we have the sheep and the goats. This will be very similar to the wheat and the tares. It, it, those parables, they, these parables kind of, they supplement, they, they line up with each other perfectly. They tell the same story. Verse 34, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So they are going to enter into the kingdom, which again tells us that this has to happen uh, at the beginning of the millennium, not at the end. And you know what? I, I want to show you one verse that goes with this. Can I do that real quickly for you? Uh, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn to it and find it, I'm going to take you to a Revelation 11 and verse 17. Now, the context here, let me give you a little context. This, this is the seventh angel that sounds. It's the seventh trumpet. 
and this is uh, this triggers the second coming of Christ. Right? So verse number 17, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. Now in some other translations, it, it where it's where we have it hat thou hast reigned at the end, it says thou hast begun to reign. You've begun to reign. And which narrows it down to the beginning of that uh, millennial time. Watch verse 18. And the nations were angry. Well, that's true. They were. They were fighting against the Lord as he's coming back, right? They were gathered to fight against him. The nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged. Now, the dead, not just physically dead, but spiritually dead also. You have to keep that in mind here that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. That'll end up being the goats. But notice, give reward unto thy servants, the prophets. This again helps us narrow down the timing for the judgment that we're reading about in Matthew 25. Because the prophets, that's a part of Israel, the nation of Israel from the Old Testament. They have a promise that they will rise and go into the kingdom, sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and live in that millennial time. So we, we can really narrow down and focus in uh, on the judgment of the nations. We know exactly when that's going to happen. All right, let's come back to Matthew 25 now, verse number 34. He says, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. From the foundation of the world, the kingdom that was prepared from that time. Let me give you a quick glimpse here. Genesis 1.28, this is God speaking to Adam and Eve. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and, have, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So Adam and Eve, they are told to have dominion. Right? They're going to rule. Now, this time, there's only beasts and animals and fish and so forth and birds, but they are commanded to replenish the earth, to fill it. So there are going to be people that they rule over. So there is a human government in view here. But also, what you have to remember is before the fall, God walked with man. God, the voice of the Lord walked in the cool of the day and the, and the Lord and Adam would have that close, intimate, personal fellowship. Adam could enjoy the presence of God at any time. This is what we have in the millennium. God manifest in the flesh, Jesus, right? God in a body, living amongst man. We are able to enjoy his fellowship. There is a human aspect to the government in that millennial time, that kingdom age, right? Jesus is the king of kings. So there are other rulers under, under Jesus's authority in that time. So when he speaks about the kingdom that was prepared from the foundation of the world, this is what God intended to happen before sin entered into the picture. All right, let me take you back again now to Matthew 25. Let's keep working our way here. Now, the next few verses don't require a lot of comment. So forgive me, I'm not trying to just race through it. It's not as if there's, there, uh, uh, there's, there's nothing extremely deep to it. It's not that it's not profitable, but uh, it, it doesn't need much explanation. Verse 35, For I was in hungered, 
and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Now, all of these things, these are, they should be a part of our lives. They should be a part of, of living out our faith. Can I just mention the cross-reference, James chapter 2, right? Show me thy faith by thy works. You don't want to just say to somebody, be warmed and filled, but go do something about it. So that's the idea here. He, he's talking about, uh, the, he's just explaining the, the basic needs that we see all around us. Now, let's be careful, right? These, these are good humanitarian things to do. Atheist can do these type of things, right? They can feed the hungry. They can give drink to the thirst. They, anybody can do these things. So we are going to mention some more details that go into, that factor into this judgment. But for now, Jesus says, here's the good things you did unto me, unto me. Verse 37, then shall the righteous answer him saying, Lord, when saw we, I'm sorry, forgive me. I'm still getting used to scrolling with that. Then shall the righteous answer him saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? I find this interesting. You know, we're constantly looking for the presence of God, aren't we? Aren't we? And yet, these people say, when did we see thee? Little did they know, an opportunity to minister to Christ was all around them. An opportunity to spend time in Christ's presence, right? In his presence, indirectly, mind you. But it was there. Verse 39, uh, 40, I'm sorry. Verse 40, when saw we thee sick in prison came unto thee? And the king, verse 40, the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Now, if you've had discipleship, you've heard me comment on this before. The way that I've always approached this and talked about this is to say that the brethren that Jesus is mentioning here that they are his fellow Jews and that Gentiles in the tribulation time, they are going to be judged based on how they took care of the Jews who were being severely persecuted by the Antichrist in the tribulation. Let me say that I do not have any problems with that explanation, right? But I think I have fallen short of fully grasping or explaining what's going on in this passage. Because I, I have limited my view of brethren. Now, let me tell you where I think my, my small mistake has come in on this. The way I've spoken about it in the past is to say the body of Christ didn't exist yet, which is true, right? The body of Christ starts on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit baptizes people into the body. So my idea was Jesus doesn't have those spiritual brethren as, as we now know it, right? What he had, when he says brethren, he's talking about his physical heritage, and that would be a Jewish thing. Now, I, I re you can find it in other places where it is important for people to aid the Jew in the tribulation, right? You can find that in the book of Revelation. So that's, 
That's why I say I don't have a problem with the way I've explained that in the past. I just think it's too narrow. Let me show you a verse that I, I didn't even think about until recently. Um, we covered it not too long ago. Look at this one. Uh, no, it's verse 8. I'm sorry. Matthew 23, verse 8. But, uh, but be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ. Now watch this. And all ye are brethren. That has nothing to do with you're all Jewish. That has to do with, now, he's not saying that they're in the body of Christ at that time, but they do have a common spiritual bond in that they are disciples and followers of Christ. So he does at that time refer to them as brethren. So I think we have to keep that in view when we're reading this verse, right? Jesus has already mentioned that his followers are brethren, one of another. So I'm going to have to broaden my explanation. Yes, Gentiles in the tribulation should take care of persecuted Jews, but any believer in the tribulation, whether they're Jewish or not, any disciple of Christ qualifies as brethren. And if they need help and somebody in, in that tribulation time reaches out and helps them, they get rewarded for that. Please, I'm going to mention more about this in a moment. Just let me remind you, just because I'm talking about the prophetic aspect of this, please don't take away from how we should be applying the truth of this now. Right? We should be living out this kind of faith. Now, the other thing that you want to be careful of, people might read this and say, well, if I want to have eternal life and enter into the kingdom, all I have to do is, is do these good humanitarian deeds. Feed the hungry, visit the sick, that type of thing. There's more to it. We cannot divorce what, what Jesus has said on previous occasions about believing that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior. He told that rich young ruler when he was asked, what do I have to do to have eternal life? He told him, sell all, come follow me. So that, that was part of it, right? Let me remind you of a, of a verse here that Jesus gave. Um, see if I can find it. See how this ties in to what we're reading in Matthew 25. He that receiveth you receiveth me. He that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. Now you know what Jesus is saying. If you've done it unto one of the least of these, you've done it to me. So there's that connection. Uh, look at the last verse there. Mark 10 verse 42. Or Mark, I'm sorry. Matthew 10 verse 42. Whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these... Forgive me, I'm struggling to see it on my screen. Whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these least little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. I think we need to factor in what Jesus said there in Matthew 10 and, and put it together with what we're studying in Matthew 25. So it's not just that... Um, it's not just that I'm human, that guy's human, so I'm just going to help him, and I can have no faith in Christ. I can reject Jesus as the Christ. All I have to do is humanitarian, you know, uh, altruistic good deeds, and then I'm going to enter the kingdom. That, that's not enough. You still have to, you're doing this for the sake of Christ. You're doing this to help this person because they are connected to Christ. All right, so when they asked the Lord, when saw we thee? When did we see you hungry or you in prison? And he says, God, that brother, that sister, that little one was an extension of me. You helped them and I took it personally. So back in, back in Matthew 25, I want to point out something else that the Lord taught me. 
uh, as I was studying for this. I've never noticed it about this chapter before. Um, okay, let me let me uh, get the verse for you. Give me just one moment here. All right, watch this. First part of Matthew 25. He answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. What's the problem? They lacked a personal relationship, didn't they? That was the problem. And then the unprofitable servant, verse 24. What was the problem? Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man. That's not the Lord. What he thought he knew about the Lord was wrong. He had the wrong knowledge of God. The knowledge that he thought he had of God, that was, that was an imagination that needed to be cast down. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5. And then when we get to verse 40, what are we learning? We see that we can find the presence of Christ. We can minister to Christ personally through these other disciples. Now, I, I think it's interesting that in every part, all three parts of this chapter, Jesus touches on the personal, intimate relationship that we need to have with him. I've never picked up on that before. Now, as it pertains to doing good deeds, uh, oops, I want to give you a verse here from Galatians 6 and verse 10. Please understand, I'm not speaking against doing humanitarian deeds for any other human being, right? Love your neighbor. That, that, that is a basic tenet of Christianity. Whether they're a believer or not, it's always right to do right. It's always good to do good. So even if it's your enemy, you're still allowed, right? Aren't we supposed to feed our enemy and give, give some, a cup of cold water to them that hate us, right? That's biblical as well. But notice the balance here, Galatians 6, verse 10. As we, therefore, uh, as we have, therefore, opportunity, let us do good unto all men. Then notice how Paul narrows it down. Especially unto them who are of the household of faith. So Paul recognizes the difference between basic humanitarian deeds and something specially done for uh, somebody in the body of Christ, a fellow brother in Christ. Let me show it to you in one other way. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Now, this is talking about people in your like physical family, uh, your relatives, your blood relatives. But if you, wouldn't, if you don't mind me making a spiritual application here, we are allowed to give special attention to people that have a, a deeper bond with us than just fellow human being. Right? We are allowed to say, but this is my family. And I'm going to provide for them first before I provide for everybody else and strangers and so forth. It's not that we ignore strangers, but we are allowed to, to recognize the special bond we have with, with people. All right, Matthew 25. Let's keep going here. Verse number, verse number 40. Uh, <clears throat> As you've done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Verse 41, then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, I've taught you guys this before, but in the millennial time, in, in the kingdom age, there will be a lake of fire that is, is present on the earth. Uh, we've talked about this previously in Matthew in back, way back in chapter 5, so I'm not going to take a long time to re-explain that now. 
But these goats that are on the left hand, they are going to be carried out. And Matthew 13, you have the parable of the tares being gathered and thrown into the fire. Can you imagine what a horrible thing this will be to hear? Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. Now see, the fire that they're in, they are going to constantly be burning. That lake of fire that they are in while they're on the earth, after the thousand years, it I want to say it burns up, but it that lost soul, it just moves into the final and ultimate lake of fire. So the fire just continues on. Now notice something unique about verse 41. Jesus added this detail that fire is prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was never meant. The lake of fire was never meant for a human. It was meant for the devil and his angels. Isn't that interesting? I've used that sometimes in witnessing or in preaching to say this is part of, you need to understand God's heart. People sometimes wonder how could God prepare such a horrible place like hell where people have nothing but pain and suffering forever and ever and torment and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. God never meant for any human being to go there, ever. Verse 42, he explains to them, for I was in hunger and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you took me not in. Uh, naked and you clothed me not. Sick and in prison and you visited me not. Verse 44. Then shall they also answer him saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hungered or a thirst or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not, to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. Now, let me ask you this. If you were standing there listening to Jesus say this, right? you have no New Testament. You do not have the book of Romans. You don't have Titus. You don't have Corinthians. You don't have Galatians, Ephesians, nothing. You don't have any Pauline revelation. The mysteries of the New Testament have not been revealed. What would you think is required of you in order to have eternal life and in order to enter into the kingdom? You would think, I have to believe Christ, I have to be a follower of his, and I have to live my faith, and I have to live it right in such a way that I'm loving these people properly, not just talking about it, not just saying be warmed and filled, but doing something about it. I have to live out this love that God has shown me. I don't see how you could understand it any other way. You have to be careful not to take what we now know from from the New Testament and read it back into this. We understand that once the body of Christ gets started and once the Holy Spirit comes in, when somebody now receives Christ, they immediately have eternal life and the Holy Spirit begins to work in them in order to accomplish these good works. Right? We do not do the good works to get saved. We do not do good works to stay saved. We do good works because we are saved. Now, this is a truth that is very clear to us because we have the benefit of the entire New Testament revelation. But if you're hearing this in Matthew 25, chronologically, when he said this, if you're standing there and you, you, haven't, you don't have the benefit of Paul, then you would understand salvation slightly differently. Uh, this is your...
attendance code for tonight. Let me give you the verse on the screen. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Paul says here, and, and I think everybody's familiar with this passage, but, oh, wrong button. But it doesn't hurt for you to see these great verses again. For by grace, I'm in Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now see, if, if you try to force that into Matthew 25, you're going to have a tough time of making those two things match because the way Jesus is presenting it, you need to do some good works in order to enter the kingdom. Paul went on to say, Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So the way we now understand it, we should be doing, right? The plan of God is that we do all of those good works that we've read about in Matthew 25 because we're saved, because we're on our way to the kingdom and we already have eternal life. All right, Matthew 25, and let's keep going in verse number 40, 45. Is that where we're at? Yeah. Touching the wrong button there. All right, so verse 46 now, he says, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment. Obviously the goats, but the righteous into life eternal. Now, that seems pretty straightforward. And the way most people approach the chapter, right? They put this judgment at the end of time. So it makes for a nice, neat finish to the chapter. Uh, bad people go to hell. Good people go into life eternal. Done. But because we understand the timing of this chapter to be at the beginning of the thousand years, then the everlasting punishment, right? They go into that fire. That's pretty straightforward. But the righteous into life eternal, some, it creates a, it, well, it raises a question, I think. What exactly does Jesus mean here? Because we have people that have physically lived through the second advent, the battle of Armageddon and all of that. And now they walk into the kingdom. Do they automatically get a glorified body? Some have proposed that they have to go to the tree of life and eat, and then they'll be able to live forever. And that's how they get eternal life. I, I struggle. I know the verses that are proposed to support that, but I struggle to, to make those connections. I think what we have to do is, is understand something about... Uh, this phrase, life eternal, it is not synonymous with immortality, right? So when Jesus says the righteous enter into life eternal, that is not the same thing as saying the righteous receive immortality. We understand from the rest of this chapter that they are entering into the kingdom. And life eternal is, I think immortality might fall underneath the category of what's included in eternal life. But it's not the same thing. You and I right now have eternal life. Right now. If you're saved, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you have life eternal. But you don't have immortality right now. You see, so they go together, but they're not the same thing. I'm going to show you a passage right now in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 8. Now, this chapter is talking about the Messiah coming. I'm, I'm just giving you a few extra verses Strength, and verse 3, Isaiah 35, 3, Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. You know where that's quoted? That's in Hebrews 
chapter 12. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. It's a promise of the Messiah coming. Uh, Verse 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. This was part of Jesus's ministry because he was fulfilling the promises about the Messiah coming. Verse 6, then shall the lame man leap as an heart and the tongue of the dumb tongue of the dumb sing for in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert now the first half of verse 6 was fulfilled in the days of Christ's earthly ministry but the second half wasn't nature doesn't get fixed right the creation doesn't come right until the second coming verse 7 and the parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water in the habitation of dragons where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes, so everything becomes a paradise again. Watch verse 8. Now, we're talking about the kingdom, which is exactly what we're dealing with in Matthew 25. And an highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. So that's the the cursed, the, the goats, out they go. But it shall be for those, the wayfaring men. Now, a wayfarer is a traveler. The wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. Now, let me admit to you, that phrase, that's tricky. I am still meditating on on that, trying to to put together some solid cross-references to understand that. As best I can tell at this point, and I'd love to hear if you have any thoughts on it. As best I can understand that, wayfaring men, these are people that... um, that have come from afar and now they have assembled here for the kingdom and they didn't have all their spiritual ducks in a row. They didn't follow the Antichrist. They didn't take the mark of the beast and now they are allowed into the kingdom even though they had some mistakes that they had made leading up to that time. I, like I said, that, that's a tough portion of scripture right there. But if you don't mind, there's still more we can, even though we may not be able to fully, or if I, I cannot fully explain that last part about though fools, they'll not err therein. Um, I would like to say that they, they make it in by the skin of their teeth, right? As, as the saying goes. And then once they're in the kingdom, they won't err, right? They, they're around a, a, a godly environment and they get straightened out. That's the best I can do with that. But verse nine, no lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sign shall flee away. That is all part of life eternal, right? They're entering into eternal life, mind you, is better understood not as physically living forever, but as having the life that God intended you to have, being connected to the source of life, which is God. He is eternal life, the Bible says in one place, over there in 1 John. So being connected to a reconciled, joined to the Lord, that's life eternal. That's a better way to understand it. So the righteous enter into life eternal. They enter into a, a fuller relationship with God in that kingdom time. So that's, that's, I believe, what Jesus was indicating at the end of Matthew 25. 
All right, now Matthew 26. Let me give you guys an outline for that. If you have any questions about Matthew 25, this is a great time to slip them in before we move on. Let me give you this. Now, forgive me, I know this might be a bit small on the screen. It's the best I could do. This is a very busy chapter. So, uh, Matthew 26. And as you can see, I, I, I gave up on, on the alliteration. I've tried to alliterate all my outlines just, just for the sake of helping you remember them. But yeah, seven different points, I gave up on the alliteration. Uh, slightly different breakdown for this first one. Betrayal. Betrayal. Verses 1 to 5 and 14 to 16. However, there's an involved explanation to this. Part 2, burial prep, verses 6 to 13. That's actually part of the betrayal story. It, it is connected, and I'll, I'll explain that when we get to it. Sorry, verse, or the part 3, the Last Supper, verses 17 to 30. Uh, verses 31 to 35, smite the shepherd. This has to do, this is the conversation that Jesus had with Peter. Uh, this is what sparked it for Peter to say, I, I'll never forsake you, I'll never um, leave you. And then he gives him the prophecy that before the cock crows, he'll deny him thrice. Uh, verses 36 to 56, the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, part six, falsely accused, obviously speaking about Jesus. Verses 57 to 68. And then the last part, verses 69 to 75, Peter's denial. So we've got a lot of information to cover. By the grace of God, we'll make it as far as we can tonight. But obviously, we're not going to finish this chapter tonight. Plenty to say, though. Plenty to say. Chapter 26 and verse 1. I'm going to leave that up just for a minute. I know a lot to write down there. Um, but I'm still, I have my eye on that chat section just in case somebody has a question on chapter 25. There's a lot that happened in that chapter as well. All right, I'm going to continue on, but please feel free to slip a question in if you need to. Chapter 26 and verse 1. It came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. All right, that, that mention of betrayed to be crucified. Two days before the Passover, Jesus makes this announcement. He says, guys, there is a plot for me to be betrayed. What Matthew does for the next several verses is dig into material and information that pertains to the betrayal that Jesus just mentioned. What you have to know about Matthew is he is not so much worried about chronology Right? As far as the sequence of the events, he's more worried about you understanding why this part of the story or how this part of the story relates to this. So if Jesus is going to be betrayed, what's the backstory behind that? Give us all the details. And Matthew tends to jump around in the timing of it. Mark, he, he does on occasion. Mark tends to give us a, a slightly more laid out step-by-step -step chronology. But what you have to do for this story, especially this part of the story, you have to get the book of John. And then you can get Matthew and Mark pretty much agree on, on the way they tell this story. But you take John's gospel and take Matthew's gospel, and they perfectly supplement each other. But you're going to find different parts of, of the story, different pieces of the puzzle 
in, in both of these gospels. Right? So we will do a little bit of back and forth in this. All right, so tell us, Jesus, what? tell us more about this betrayal. This is two days before the Passover that he's mentioned this. And it says in verse 3, Then assembled together the chief priest and the scribes and the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest, who is called Caiaphas, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. So they want to do it quietly. Now this decision to have Jesus snuffed out, as they say in the mobster world, this was a plan that had already been decided upon and you can read about this in John chapter 11, verses 47 to 53. Uh, let me do it this way. I'm going to put those verses in the chat section. So I think I did. Yeah. So back in that passage, you can see a conversation between these religious and uh, political big shots making a plan to have Jesus taken out of the picture. They know that he's the divisive one. He's the troublemaker. What we're reading in verses 3 and 4 and 5, this is a second or a separate meeting from the one you have in John chapter 11. So now they've, they met. They said, we got to have Jesus out of here. Now they're meeting again, and they're furthering the plan. We've already decided we need to have him killed, but how are we going to do this? We need to do it very smartly. Verse 5 but they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. So you can see they were very nervous uh, about doing this subtly in a way that wouldn't disturb the people, wouldn't cost them the nation. Now, we have this, this next story is a beautiful story. And I've preached from it many times. And, and you'll see why as we go through it. However, as you can see, Matthew starts verse 6 by saying, Now when Jesus was in Bethany. But when was he in Bethany? Well, you might remember Jesus made his triumphal entry back in Matthew 21. We read there in Matthew 21 how he cleansed the temple and cursed the fig tree. Right? Well, all of that took place while Jesus was staying in Bethany. So what Matthew has done is he's, he's given us this information. Jesus said he's going to be betrayed. And then some of the details that pertains to that, you have the chief priests, the elders, Caiaphas, they're working their plan. So that's one part of the story. Another part of the story is four days ago, four days ago in Bethany, this special occasion took place in the house of Simon the leper, where the body of Jesus was anointed for his burial, even though he wasn't dead yet. This is important because in this story, we're going to read that Judas gets rebuked. And when Judas gets rebuked, it, it doesn't sit well with him. That's what causes Judas to go out, find those chief priests and elders, and cut a deal with them. So this is how it plays into the betrayal story. Now, let me have you take your Bible. You can come to John chapter 12. Um, this is one of those times where if we were in class, I would ask you to hold John 12 in one hand and Matthew 26 in the other. So if, you're, if you have your, the, the Bible open before you, I would encourage you to do that. John 12, verse 1. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead, who had been raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. 
Then Mary took a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his, his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? 300 days worth of salary. That's a lot of money. Verse 6, then he said, not that he cared, or this he said rather, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. Judas was just thinking about the money. He really wasn't concerned about the poor. Which, by the way, a lot of people that talk about helping the poor and those kind of social justice issues, they're not concerned about the people. They have other motives. But verse 7, then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. All right, so there's the story from John's perspective. What you're going to find in Matthew's version of it does not contradict anything John said. Everything supplements. John gives us certain details, and then Matthew will give us other details. But it all works together. Uh, okay. Matthew 26, and starting again in verse number Six. Now when Jesus was in Bethany. Now if you only had the Gospel of Matthew, you would think that this is taking place two days before the Feast of Passover. But because we have the, the, the blessing of, of both Gospels of more information, we can see how the timing actually worked. And guys, don't, please don't get the idea that, well, Man, this is confusing. Why didn't the gospel writers get everything straightened out? Doesn't this appear as if there's a mistake or maybe uh, the Bible doesn't present the story very clearly? This actually supports the idea that there was no collusion between the early apostles, the early disciples. They were not trying to create a story that would convince the public where every detail of everybody's account of one situation lined up and sounded the same. If every detail came out the exact same, we would think that they made up the story and decided beforehand what to say. The fact that Matthew gives us one set of details and John gives us another set, that's what you would expect from two honest perspectives of telling a story. So I think it actually supports the legitimacy of the Bible that we have uh, two different angles. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. Now you say, but Brother Mike, in John 12, it says that the ointment was poured on his feet. Here it says his head. Yes, yes, both happened. Now I have heard some suggest that the woman of Matthew 26 is a different woman than the one in John 12. In John 12, we know it's Mary. But Matthew 26, they say this is just a different woman. And they, they say this because, not only because uh, we have the name in John and we don't have it in Matthew, but also the timing. They say one is six days before the uh, Passover feast. This one was evidently two days before. I don't think that'll work, though, to make these two the same, uh, or to make it two different occasions. Because, as you'll see in this story, Let's just keep reading and you'll see it. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, to what purpose is this waste? Now, all the disciples, right, or at least a group of them, were against what this woman was doing. But we know who the spokesperson was. Judas was, was the one saying this. Verse 9, at least out loud. 
in verse 9, for this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Now I'm going to stop there just for the moment. We'll get more into verse 13 now, now. But if these are two separate occasions, then Mary anoints his, his feet. The disciples have indignation. Judas, rather, raises the complaint, hey, you're wasting the money. Jesus rebukes him before everybody and says, she's done good, leave her alone. Then four days later, another woman comes, anoints his head, and the same complaint is made, and Jesus has to again rebuke them and say the same thing. She's done a good work. She's prepared my body for the burial. I, I must admit there is a precedent for the disciples having a short memory, right? We, we learned of this with the feeding of the 5,000, right? They quickly forgot about that when the feeding of the 4,000 happened just a few days after that. So I recognize that, that fact. That point stands. However, It seems unlikely that the disciples would have forgotten such a unique and specific event like this. I find it unlikely. I would rather approach this to say that these are two different aspects of the same story. And Matthew, he's telling us what happened in Bethany. He's not focusing on when it happened in Bethany. I think John gives us those details. So what you have, John 11, the religious and political leaders of Israel get together and say, let's kill Jesus. They actually make an announcement, start spreading the word. If anybody knows where Jesus is at, please let us know. Then six days before the Passover, Mary comes in with this alabaster box and anoints both the head and the feet of Jesus. Judas raises the complaint that several of the disciples were thinking about. Why are you wasting this money? Judas gets rebuked. It doesn't sit well with him. Right, And two days before the feast of the Passover, the chief priests, the elders, Caiaphas, they all have another meeting. They're trying to work out a plan. How do we get Jesus without stirring up a, a, making an uproar? And Judas, holding the grudge for the last four days, is going to step out for a moment find his way to the chief priest and say, cut me a deal. How much will you give me? I know you're looking for a way to, to betray or to get Jesus. I'm willing to betray him. How much will you give me? That happened two days before the feast of the Passover. Then what we're going to have is the Last Supper. And we'll get more into that, of course, when we, when we read the verses. But by the end of the Last Supper, Jesus hands Judas the sop. He runs out and he goes not to not to cut the deal. He's already cut the deal by that point for the 30 pieces of silver. He runs out after the Last Supper to go and get the soldiers to come back and arrest Jesus. So as far as the chronology, I hope that spells it out for you. I'm looking now just to make sure. I'm, as best I understand, that's how the sequence of events works if you put John and Matthew together. All right, so let's just spend more of our time here in, in Matthew. I, I'm hesitant, right, because I could... I really enjoy preaching from this story in Matthew 26. The woman 
breaking this alabaster box. Let me show you guys, this is what an alabaster box looks like. This is one example. There are many different examples of what they could look like. Alabaster is a very, it's like marble. It's a very, uh, it's a precious stone. And alabaster, we get that word. It's actually a transliteration from the Greek word. Uh, I'll show you just now what that Greek word looks like. But this alabaster box, this is a good example. Sometimes, right, this same material could be used. It was shaped in, in, a, in like a vase. How do you say it? A vase. And you would keep perfume in it and you would have a cork in the top. So you could take it out, pour some ointment out, and you could use it bit by bit. But many of these alabaster boxes were sealed. And the ointment or perfume in the box, you could, if it was sealed properly, it could be in there for 60, 70, 80 years. People would actually buy one alabaster box per lifetime. And they meant it to be used during their burial. So you could buy it in your 20s and keep it until you die at the age of 80. Right. So these things were very costly, very expensive. Not just the box, but the ointment inside. All of it was very expensive, very precious. You see why this would make sense then when we talk about, from a preaching aspect, this woman takes what was probably meant for her burial or somebody in, in her family, and she is now going to take this very precious, very costly thing and use it for Jesus. Now, I'm going to show you something here. Um, I don't know if you guys use a Bible app. I, I like eSword. I'm using eSword. There are other good ones. Um, but if you want, you saw, I hope you saw how I changed it from KJV to KJV Plus, And it gives you these options here. You can see now the... There is an entry for the Greek lexicon for each word. And if you want to know what Greek word stands behind these English words, then you can use this version or this part of, of the app. So I'm going to go down here to Alabaster Box. I hope, I hope you can see my mouse um, moving around here. Uh, I'm going to click on G211. That's the entry in the Greek lexicon and the Strong's lexicon. And you can see, I, again, I hope you can see my mouse doing this. This is the Greek word here at the top, just underneath G211. Um, alabastion, alabastron. And then we have the transliteration underneath that, alabastron. Then you have the phonetic spelling of it underneath that. And then keep going down. It explains the word. It gives you the uh, definition of the word. And it, you can see here, I'm reading the name of a stone properly, an alabaster box, that is by extension, a perfume vase of any material. So the term is, it's, it has a few different uh, uses, but we are transliterating that to be alabaster. All right, so just to keep this a little shorter, right, in the text, I'm going to take it off of the KJV+. Plus and just stick with the English words for now. But I, I thought that might be interesting for some of you if you'd like to see where some of these words come from in Greek. It, it can, at, at times, add to your Bible study. All right, so she's taken this very precious ointment, poured it on his head, I believe on his feet as well as he sat at meat. The disciples saw it, they had indignation. You know, when you go out of your way to do something for Christ, usually the people that will complain about it are the other disciples. Again, I don't want to get into preaching it, but that's true. Verse 9, for this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. True, right? And this is why I pointed out in chapter 25, nothing wrong with humanitarian deeds, 
But when you're doing something specifically for Christ, that takes precedent. That's more. Verse 10, for uh, when Jesus understood it, he said unto them, why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. They didn't think about that. Hey, you wasted the money. But yeah, why did you break that very precious box? In, in Matthew's, or Mark's gospel, rather, I believe it says the, the smell of the ointment filled the room. When you, when you do something sacrificial for Christ, everybody notices it. It fills the room with this beautiful odor, a sweet-smelling savor. Verse 11, For you have the poor always with you, but me you have not always. So when you have a unique opportunity to do something for the Lord or for one of the least of these, my brethren, take advantage of that. You see, he's not saying don't help the poor. He's saying you'll have that opportunity, but to anoint my body for burial, <laughs> that, that opportunity doesn't come around all the time. Verse 13. Uh, by the way, if I can just mention this quickly about verse 12. Do you realize what an act of faith this is? She's anointed his body for burial. We know from other passages that the disciples did not understand what Jesus said when, when he prophesied, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to rise again. They didn't get it. This woman did. Mary did. Right? As best I can tell, I mean, he's in the house of Simon the leper. By the way, I didn't talk much about Simon. We don't know a lot about him. This might be the leper that Jesus healed early on in his ministry, but he healed many lepers, so we're not exactly sure who this Simon is, but... As far as I can tell, nobody else in the room fully understood or appreciated what this woman was doing but Jesus. She may not have understood everything about the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, but she believed it. She believed he's going to die. Why else anoint his body for burial? She, that, that's a great act of faith. Verse 13 Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman hath done be told for a memorial of her. This is why I love to preach from this passage. In every church that I've ever started, I have preached from this passage because I am honoring what the woman did. I'm also honoring what Jesus said here. And when, she, when Jesus says, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached, I, I believe he's talking specifically about the gospel we now preach, the, the gospel of his death, burial, and resurrection, because she anointed the body for the burial. I believe it's connected to that. Think about that. What a prestigious position this woman holds in, in church history and in the story of Christ. But of all the people that heard him talk about his demise, as far as I can see, she's the only one that caught on. All right, I think we can, these next few verses go quickly, so let me at least make it to verse 16 for this evening. Verse 14 says, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priest and said unto them, What will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted, they they agreed with him. They covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. And from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. So you can see what, what Matthew has done. Jesus, two days before the Passover, says, Guys, the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. 
Jesus knows that the plan is, is unfolding. And now he is going to, Matthew gives us the details behind the betrayal. The chief priests and elders were doing this. The woman did this. Judas got rebuked. It didn't sit well with him. He went to the chief priest and made this deal. Now notice, I mentioned earlier that the, these leaders were making an announcement that if anybody knew where Jesus was, uh, they should say something. Look there at John eleven fifty seven, right there at the bottom of the chapter. Now both the chief priest and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, that where Jesus was, he should show it that they might take him. So earlier in the chapter, I gave you this passage earlier in the comment section. This is where they had already decided we need to get rid of Jesus. The chief priest had made it public knowledge that they wanted to know where he was. This is how Judas, this explains that why Judas, after being rebuked by the Lord, sorry, this explains why after being rebuked by the Lord and not, it didn't, it didn't sit well with him, why he would go to these people. It explains the whole betrayal, or at least this aspect of the betrayal. Now, the whole 30 pieces of silver, this is something we're going to touch on again. I believe it's in Matthew yeah, 27, so I'm going to reserve comment for that. But this was a, a fulfilled prophecy from the book of Zechariah, so we will get more into that later. And from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. So he's just looking for a time when he can break away from the disciples and gather, you know, get the necessary people to come and arrest Jesus. And obviously, as the story of the Last Supper unfolds, we'll see how that took place. Okay, I think we've reached a fairly good stopping point for this evening. Uh, we didn't do too bad. There's, like I said, a lot of information to cover. So, I think we're doing all right. Lord willing, next time we will get close to finishing chapter 26 on Tuesday night. If you guys have any questions... Okay, I do see one. All right, so here's a question uh, posted. If anybody has another question... Uh, please feel free to slip it in. Okay, there's another one. Brother Mike, what are dragons? What are dragons meant for in the Bible? Um, we, we still have dragons today, right? Komodo dragons. The dragons that you would find in, in, that are mentioned in biblical times. Right? We have in Revelation the great red dragon, which I don't think is a physical um, animal that you're dealing with there. But Isaiah 35, verse 7, uh, the habitation of dragons. Dragons can, as I understand it, right? I, I am not an expert at dragons, but as I understand it, dragons can exist in parched places. They don't need a lot of, of water. And what you're reading about in Isaiah 35, now that creation has been fixed, through Jesus coming back and the whole regeneration where you once found dragons hanging out in that desolate desert type atmosphere. Now it's, it's filled with grass, reeds, and rushes. So I, I believe that's what you're wanting to know. Let me know if there's more to that. Thank you for reminding me about the announcements. Appreciate that. All right, let me read this one. Gary has asked, Pastor Mike once heard that the woman was not aware of what she was doing and God the Father was orchestrating the anointing through her. Does that link with the teaching of the verse? I don't know of any I don't know of any verse that would support that. I um 
Now, I have not personally heard that. I'm trying to think if there is any verse that would, uh, that would possibly further that teaching. I, I can't outright say that it's impossible that that happened. I can't think of a verse that says that's definitely not the way it was. For me, it works better to say that this woman, even though she may not have understood everything about the death, burial, and resurrection, she at least believed that it was going to happen. And that's why she did what she did. I, but I don't, I can't think of any verse that would uh, support that. All right, but it's a good question. Okay, uh, just to remind everybody, in case you weren't here for the first few minutes, we have a Matthew exam that's due by Tuesday. So please get that done before class starts on Tuesday. And then this week, we will have Matthew class on Tuesday and on Wednesday. So please tune in for both classes. And I know, I know some of you might be traveling on Wednesday. Um, we can be, we, we will try to accommodate and we will understand if, if you have to listen to the live stream later, but please try to, try to be present for class. And then this coming Sunday, right next week, we will not have a Sunday evening service. We won't have class. We're going to give you the week off. All right. So guys, thank you for your time tonight. Let's pray and we'll close, close this session and Lord will, and we'll see you Tuesday. Lord, thank you for the privilege of covering this information and uh, so many things that uh, we can take away from this tonight, so many things that we can do with this information. Lord, there are so many opportunities all around us, ways that we can minister to you through other people. Uh, Lord, help us to be mindful of those needs. Help us to remember the great love and compassion you had towards us and pass that on to others. And Father, thank you for your help tonight. Please continue to teach us. We want to be students of your word for our entire life, Lord. We just, we don't want to stop learning. Please continue to teach us more about you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys have a wonderful evening. You'll see me Tuesday.